The Astrea Trilogy, written and read by Seymour Hamilton. Book One, The Voyage South. Chapter One, in which Astrea fights with Yan, and Alana passes on a gift. The young men of the village pushed and shoved Astrea along the shoreline between outcroppings of rock at the sea's edge, and then into a little bay below the cliffs where he could not escape. When they had formed a circle around him, Yan, the chief tormentor, shouldered his way into the wild-eyed ring. He was a heavy-set, powerful-looking boy, with shoulders that began just below his earlobes. Solid muscles strained his shirt-sleeves, and his thick forearms ended in stubby-fingered hands. His reddish hair grew almost down to his eyebrows, his youthful beard was patchy, and he breathed with his mouth half open, revealing widely spaced teeth. Astrea was as slim as Yan was bulky, dark as he was fair. He stood almost casually, but beneath the pose he was as tight as a coiled spring. Yan lumbered forward. Astrea dodged, caught a big upraised arm, pivoted, pulled, and stepped back. Yan fell face forward, and the ring of youths distorted into an oval. Yan scrambled to his feet, spitting sand. "'Fight like a man!' Yan shouted. "'Sure,' replied Astrea, "'if you can find me one. You're nothing but a boy.' He stuck out his chin, and stroked his hand over his short, black beard, mocking Yan's pale tufts of facial hair. Yan growled wordlessly. Someone shoved at Astrea's back, but instead of falling, Astrea dived, rolled on his shoulder, and came up face to face with Yan so close that neither could hit the other. "'Where'd you learn to do that?' "'Skarm. "'What kind of wrestling do you learn from a one-eyed man? "'Hey, little black-haired goody-goody? "'Spending a lot of time with Skarm, do ya? "'Readin' stuff. "'What else do you do?' "'He's twice the man you are, with spare parts left over.' Oh, he is, is he? So, and how do you know? And what's he been teaching you about? Before stuff. Nobody cares Coswallop to know. Tell me, Blackhead, what you're reading about now? Triangles, said Estrella. Square corner triangles, and how their sides always work out to be three, four, and five. Yan paused just an instant too long before forcing a laugh. Some good that'll do ya, trying to make yourself special. Well, Blackhead, you are special, special strange, son of a, of a stranger. Spending time with that crazy old one-armed man, Skarm, who's lost his grip. Yan paused. One-armed man who's lost his grip. Hey, that's good, ain't it? Some of the boys laughed, whether they got the point or not. Very good, Yan, very funny. A joke, and you got a laugh. Beginner's luck. Yan fell back a step, half-crouched, and readied himself to grab for the first hold. Yan, said Estrella, this is stupid. Let's all go home. Are you calling me stupid? Estrella shrugged. Yan lunged forward to grab him in a bear hug, but Estrella dropped, crouched, and kicked at the back of Yan's knee, felling the big lad to the sand. Red-faced under his ginger hair, Yan scrambled to his feet again and aimed a roundhouse swing at Estrella's head. Estrella ducked and circled to his left, 
glancing over his shoulder for a weak spot in the ring of clasped hands. You, you stranger, you got no business speaking to my girl. That's her business, not yours. She's mine, and you're not going to steal her. I wouldn't want to. Rob, a wide-shouldered, long-armed boy, just coming into his man's strength, grabbed Estrella from behind, pinning his arms. Yan, you gonna let this black-haired stranger mess with our girls? Yan glared at Estrella from under his thatch of unruly hair. Estrella slid down out of the hold, but two other young men snatched at his arms and hauled them in opposite directions. Estrella tried to brace on one and kick the other, but before he could do so, Yan charged head down into his unprotected middle, doubling him over. Estrella fell face down into the sand, gasping for breath, taking his two captors with him. Two more joined in to help, and a milling, grunting, sweat and sand-streaked pile held Estrella spread-eagled on the black sand beach. Turn him over! They tried to follow Yan's order, but Estrella kicked and struggled, knocking two back on their heels. But the two who held his arms did not let go. Estrella spat sand, some of which reached Yan's face, redoubling his fury. However, the pack's enthusiasm was waning. All but Yan found the victory unsatisfactory, since it had been at the price of breaking the village's code of one-on-one -on -one wrestling. Fights among both boys and men ended when one person was pinned. There was no wounding or killing, because there never had been. "'That's enough, eh?' said Cam, the smallest of the group, who had been pushed aside early in the struggle. His mouse-blonde hair stuck to a cut over one eye, and his oversized jacket was torn, even though he had not come close to Estrella in the confusion of hands and feet. No one heeded, although Yan felt his followers' eyes on him. He shook his head, sweat flipping off the ends of his hair. His mind slipped to the work of killing fish, chickens, rabbits, and sheep, the business necessary to eating and living in the world they all shared. He picked up a stone and advanced on Estrella, a matter-of-fact purpose in his eyes. Hold it, he said. Indecision froze the minds of Estrella's captors as they saw the upraised stone, and they loosened their grip. Estrella squirmed convulsively, broke free, scrambled to his feet, stumbled backwards, and stood with his shoulders against the cliff that loomed above the tiny beach. Yan advanced on Estrella like a sleepwalker, shrugging off Cam, who was too small and light to restrain him. His big, work-hardened fist came up. For an instant, all of Estrella's swiftness and agility ebbed out of him. "'Duck!' Cam screamed, breaking the spell. Estrella saw Yan's hand tighten on the jagged stone, saw its sharp edges, saw the clumsy weapon coming at him, saw the ring of aghast faces, saw the encroaching sea behind them, saw the stone again, and knew he had ample time to sidestep before the stone smacked on the cliff close to his ear, crumbling in Yan's hand. The sound snapped the murderous sequence of events, leaving all of them at a loss. Six attackers faced Estrella, unsure what to do next. Yan sucked split finger-ends. Estrella scanned past faces as expressionless as if they'd all been fresh-woken from sleep. "'Take a look behind you,' said Estrella calmly. The incoming sea had more than halved the beach. Waves foamed over black, jagged rock on either side of the little bay. 
their footprints had vanished, and the marks of the scuffle were being eaten away by successive waves. They stared at the water in a horrified fascination, realizing their peril, and shrank back beside Astraea, their backs joining his against the cliff. "'We can still make it back round the point,' said Yan. "'In a goat's arse,' said Astraea. "'You'll be dragged out to sea with the first wave.' "'We're going to be in deep, and soon,' said Cam. "'We'll have to climb out,' said Estrella. The sea hissed on the sand as each wave pulled back from an ever higher watermark. The undertow rattled pebbles where they had walked dry-shod. Estrella alone was not hypnotized by the steadily approaching sea. While the others stared blankly, he turned towards the cliff. "'This way,' he said, looking up at a crack in the black cliff. Above their heads the crack opened to a fissure, and then to a chimney that led up to where the roots of a pine-tree knuckled over the cliff-edge far above them. But the rock where he touched was slicked with green slime, and his fingers could not find a hold. "'You can't get up that,' said Cam. "'Nobody can. We're done for.' "'No, we're not,' said Estrella. "'Take off your belts and buckle them together. Lift me up.' I'm the tallest and lightest. You'll just get up there and leave us, said Yan. Don't be stupid, said Estrella. It's the only way. Don't call me stupid, Yan shouted. Well, don't say stupid things. Something in his voice cut through their fear and indecision, and they did as they were told, even though under different circumstances they might have sided with Yan, ignored Estrella, or told him in a few crude words not to think himself better than them. Right, said Estrella, as the sea herded them closer. We need three to stand here against the rock and bend over. Cam, you're light. You can climb on their backs. Now, if everyone braces against the cliff— Rob, Yan, you're strongest, said Cam, who had seen what was to be done. You be the bottom row. He clutched at the waistband of his breeks as they threatened to slip off his hips now his belt was gone. Yan placed his hands on the cliff— his head down, his mind confused by the succession of sudden changes. Blood dripped from his fingers onto the sand at his feet. Rob put his shoulder to Yan's hip, and Cam struggled up Rob's back onto Yan's shoulders. Then Estrella clambered up the clumsy human ladder. Cam's canvas jacket ripped again as Estrella got first one knee and then the other onto his shoulders. Steadying himself against the cliff, he stood and reached beyond the sea-slick rock to the first possible handholds of strong, dry stone. At that moment the improvised stack of bodies disintegrated, and all but Estrella tumbled in a heap onto the sand below. For a moment he dangled from his hands. He scrabbled with his feet and pulled mightily, first his forearm, then his chest, and finally a knee made it to the first ledge in the widening cleft. He clung panting to the rock, felt his heartbeat pound in his throat, and momentarily was unable to move. Then, as his breathing steadied, he recovered his calm. He looked up at the rocky scramble to the cliff-top, and Yan's words came back to him. It would be easy to continue on up the cliff, leaving the others behind. He hesitated only for an instant, and then bracing his shoulders on one side of the crack, he planted his feet on the other and unwound the rope of belts from his waist. He lowered one end down to the upturned faces below. 
Yan first, then Rob, he shouted, taking a turn of the belts around a spur of rock. They all saw what had to be done. Good idea, Strayer, said Can. We can do it. Yan took hold of the dangling belts and scrambled hand over hand up the slick rock to the foot and handholds that began where Estrella braced himself. Avoiding Estrella's eyes as he clambered over him, Yan climbed up the widening gully. Sand and small stones rattled down on Estrella, bouncing off his shoulders and stinging the back of his neck. One after the other, the rest half climbed, half hauled themselves up the cliff face. Without the improvised rope, they would not have been able to scale the water-polished, seaweed-slick stone, and every one of them knew it. They stared up at Estrella, climbed towards him, looked into his grey-green eyes, took his hand, and accepted his help into the chimney of dry, firm rock where climbing was easy. Eventually they all stood at the cliff-top, looking down on Estrella's head and shoulders as he scrambled up towards them. With sidelong glances at each other, and no words said, they collected their belts and set off for their homes. Cam was last to leave. He stood, fitting his belt back into his oversized breeks, looking quizzically at Estrella with his head on one side. Estrella, how did you do that? What? Why ain't you dead, with a rock in your head? I, uh, just was quicker than he was, I guess. Quicker? One moment you was a goner, next moment you're an arm's length away, Yan hit the cliff, and you was telling us what to do like you were saying that the sun comes up in the morning. Estrella could not explain, even to himself, how time had slowed for him, bringing with it complete confidence. Well, Yan ain't going to say it for sure, said Cam with a grin. So, thanks for saving our lives. Before Estrella could reply, Cam turned and walked away, his shapeless torn jacket pulled around him. Estrella took a step back to the cliff edge, knelt, and looked past the grass they had crushed at its lip, down the steep gully to the water-darkened rock where the sea heaved and fell. Down there on the beach that was now under water, he had experienced something he'd never felt before, and did not fully comprehend. He was proud that his strategy had worked, that he had organized and led young men who moments before had been ready to see him humiliated. But there was something more. For a moment he could have left them all to drown. The realization made him giddy, as if at the last moment he had pulled back from stepping off the cliff-top. Slowly Estrella turned and headed towards his home. As the last light faded above the rocky western ridge high above the village, Estrella opened the door of his home. When Alanna raised her head and turned towards the door, her white hair, loose for the night, flared in a candlelit blur. Her quick glance took in his ripped and dirt-caked clothes, and then the cut knuckles on his hand with which he tried to hide a bruised cheek. Silently she pointed to a chair beside the table, and bent to scoop a bowl full of warm water from the iron pot above the fire. Estrella tried not to wince as she sponged dirt and dried blood from his face, forearms, and hands. To avoid her eyes, he watched her shadow on the whitewashed walls. Eventually, when she had finished tending his cuts, he answered the question her silence had been asking. It was all because I drew a picture of Tina 
and Yan saw it. Was it a good picture? Well, you could see it was her. I caught the way she looks a little to one side, so she seems to be sweet on you. But it's really because she doesn't hear all that well. I didn't know that. You have to watch closely, just like she does, to see people's lips. And have you been watching her? Only to draw her. Which you did today. Yeah. Down where they're preparing the boats for the season. She was sitting on the wharf, and I had my drawing stuff with me, and, well, it seemed like a good idea at the time, but Yan came up behind me and saw. And then? He said it was stealing, and that she was his, and I said something I shouldn't have. Yes? I told him he was an idiot who didn't own anybody, least of all Tina. He was angry. Oh, yes. He wouldn't take a run at me, because, well, I've stymied him before and he didn't want to take the chance in front of her. And Tina? Oh, she's the same as the rest of the girls. She knows a man should be fair-haired, big-jawed, and blue-eyed. I'm the green-eyed blackhead with the dark curly beard. I'm... I'm a stranger. When Astraea almost spat the words he hated, Alana spoke to move the story forward. So what did Yan do? He got a few of the other fellows together. They followed me. I thought I'd lost them by going round the headland at low tide. My mistake. And they caught me. And then? We uh, tussled a bit, and then we all got caught by the tide, and we had to climb up the cliff. There was a long pause, as both of them contemplated what Astraea had not said. Stupid pictures! I never should have started. Now everybody knows I draw things. Secrets have a habit of getting out. Like Skarn teaching me to wrestle. You should call him Ian. Everyone calls him Skarn. He doesn't mind. He's been good to you. You should show him respect. Mother, I do. The last time I came home like this, it was a long time ago, and I was a lot younger. You remember, because you cleaned me up just the way you're doing now. Next day... Skarm took me aside and showed me a few moves. Did you thank him? Of course. And for the other stuff he taught me. The other stuff. You know, the ciphering, the triangles, the puzzles, the stories. He said my, my, my father would have wanted me to learn. So he would. Does anyone know he was teaching you? I don't think so. At least where's... Not exactly. They know I've been into his books, but most of them can't read anything beyond a list of fish or their own names, so they don't know and they don't care. Besides, Skarn keeps all but a few of his books secret, so nobody will know how many he has. Alana looked into her son's eyes and saw that there was no point in pressuring him further about the fight or anything else he might have kept from her. Secrets, said Alana slowly. I've kept too many from you. You've what? I thought I was the one who was keeping secrets. You don't know enough about your father, she began. She looked into Astraea's eyes for signs of rejection. Astraea stared back at her, noticing once again the contrast between her youthful face and the white hair that framed it. There's so much you don't know, Astraea, because I, I don't know either, or I'm not sure. I've never lied. But I have been keeping things from you. It's because I feared for you. 
what with people so unwilling to see what a good man he was. But it was wrong of me to hide your father from you, his, his strangeness, I mean. The word hung between them, echoing the many times they had both heard it in the village as an accusation and rebuke. This was why she had kept him to herself as much as possible when he was a baby, and then a little boy, why she'd tried to find ways of dissuading him from going to sea, and this was also why, as he matured, they had slowly grown apart. They were both aware that over the most recent year or two they had laughed together less often, and while they remained polite and even distantly affectionate, they were separated by Astrea's increasing need to become a man. Though they had not spoken of it, they both knew that a boy came of age in the village when a skipper chose him as crew. The villagers of his own age saw him as a stranger. He had responded by isolating himself, and this lessened his chances of being chosen. But he felt the need to go to sea, even though he knew that Alanna dreaded the moment when he would sail onto the ocean that had taken his father's life. He was willing to be different, indeed, he took a perverse pleasure in it. But when Alanna used the word strange of his father, a sudden anger hardened his voice. Strange, mother? Foreign? Different? How strange? I don't think of my father as strange. Skarm doesn't think he was strange. Skarm always tries to get my, his, our, name right. If it wasn't for him, and you too, mother, I wouldn't be able to read. I wouldn't have learned stuff people knew before, or—' He stopped, as he saw the expression on her face, understanding for the first time that even to his mother Alanna, he, too, was strange. They stared at each other as if a cold wind had suddenly blown them apart. Alanna deliberately stood up, went to her room, and returned with the leather-bound box that her husband had made. She put her hand on its domed top, and turned towards her son. "'I gave you some of what is in here when you were younger. You've seen the pictures he made. I think maybe you started drawing because of them.' Now—she undid the clasp, lifted the lid, and stood aside, her head erect and her voice firm. You must follow your own way, my son," she said. I cannot walk it for you. Forgive me if I've ever tried to hold your father's memory from you more than I should have. But—but I—but I was not sure what to tell you. Some of what he said was beyond me. Some things didn't make sense. I couldn't explain them to you because I didn't understand them myself. Astrea took a pace towards the box and then looked down at his mother, very conscious that he overtopped her height by more than a handspan. She drew Astrea to her for a brief hug, and then deliberately released him. Blinking away tears, she busied herself with banking up the fire for the night. When she stood to go to her room, he was kneeling in front of the box, turning through bundles of bark and paper tied together with strands of wool that had not been undone in his lifetime. Silently, Alanna moved out of the candlelight and went to her room, leaving Astrea alone, poring over the clues to his father's life. That night Astrea slept little, 
and so also the next. He already knew the plain words his father had written to help Alanna learn to read and write, and which she had in turn used to encourage him when he first began his schooling. But what he read now was different, disordered, and confusing. He had hoped to learn more about his father, but he was baffled by enigmatic references to a seafaring life unlike anything the village could offer. There were pages of perplexing drawings, marked only with symbols and numbers, interspersed with diagrams, some of them composed of interlocking triangles. They were bewilderingly unlike the triangles Skarm had shown him how to solve, first as mental exercise, then as a way of drawing charts. And then there were sketches of tall-sailed boats with many masts, the like of which Astraea had never seen or imagined. And then there were columns of figures, interspersed with letters, and more inscrutable symbols, and always the sea was behind it all. At the bottom of the chest Astraea found a little leather bag and a small notebook. He emptied the bag onto the table, revealing about a dozen greenish pebbles, each about the size of the last joint of his little finger, and two larger stones about the size and shape of an onion. He frowned as he examined them carefully, because he could see nothing that distinguished them from any handful of river stones. After a few moments he put them back into the bag and dropped it into the chest. The notebook was more promising. It had been made to be carried in a pocket, and it appeared to distill the cryptic notes that made up most of the writing in the trunk. Most of the pages were empty. Many held sketches of boats, some of them with details of standing and running rigging, unlike anything used by the village fleet. Several pages reminded Astraea of the glimpses he'd seen of Skarm's born and buried book, because they appeared to use the same shorthand or code, interspersed occasionally with the name of some important member of a village family. He recognized one page as a map of the village, the fjord, and its seaward approaches. The last page held words that Astraea first thought might be part of a song. Hand of Jian Far draws on shore, star sets in song where stones roll in the tide. Sun of or on plots a course to the city of the sea, as dim clasps light no stones. The words were written in letters that had been gone over and over, as if the writer had wanted to carve them into the page. What his father had meant was not clear at all. Unlike the rest of the book, where words were complete, though often obscure, this cryptic message was confused and apparently misspelled. He wondered if the third word, Qian, lacked a T, making the word into giant. But that made little more sense. The words were legible, but seemed pointless. A star setting in the sea was possible, but in a song? Son of whom? Had he meant to write off? What was meant by or on? Off or on? In which case, how could someone be a son off or on? Had his father meant to write one rather than on? Had he just been a careless speller? Where and what was the city of the sea? Were the words missing in the last line? What was a dim, and how could it clasp light? The meaning of the riddle, 
if that was what it was, eluded him. He showed the verse to Alanna, but she only shook her head. The book fascinated Estrella no page more than this one. Night by night he pored over the legacy of words and drawings, and as he did so, Estrella grew subtly older and more distant in Alanna's eyes. Although the moment of his parting from her hung ever heavier over both of them, neither could speak of it. While the spring moon filled, they lived in growing discomfort. Each day Estrella was part of the village's preparations for the fishing season, and each night he sat silent, sometimes thinking, sometimes reading what his father had written, while his mother attended to her stitching, more often than not with the needle idle in her hands. When Estrella glanced up, feeling her eyes upon him, she turned her head away from the beeswax candle so that her face was shadowed. He returned to his reading, wondering whether all she saw in him was an echo of the man she had married but never fully understood. The Estrella Trilogy is published by Fireship Press and is available in paperback and electronic formats from FireshipPress.com, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and via EstrellaTrilogy.com. I blog at SeymourHamilton.com and would be delighted to hear your questions, opinions, suggestions, whatever. This recording is protected under the Creative Commons.